Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. It's tough hiking, and of course there's no trail. For us anyway, every step we took was like a step backwards practically, and the sand fills your shoes. It's very slow going, so I think it is kind of hard to cover a lot of long distances <laughs> on these dune fields. I mean, you'll feel it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know too many people who can't get enough of hiking <laughs> on the dunes. Right. <laughs> I've never gotten to the top of a dune and, and just thought, gosh, I can't wait to get to the top of the next one. <laughs> and when we were there, it was windy. So we had the added benefit of sand blowing in our faces, in our eyes, and, and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> But we're not trying to talk you out of it, Mike. <laughs> no, or not at all. We, or no. are we trying to talk him out <laughs> no, of it? No, 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 no. It's a great park. If you're in the area, you should definitely stop by. <laughs> this is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. This is our monthly mailbag episode, where we answer questions about the national parks, road trips, hiking, camping, backpacking, gear, relationships, and pretty much whatever anyone wants to ask us. Today, you'll hear all about the National Park Passport Stamp Book, everything you'd want to know about what they are, where to buy them, and why you don't want to visit the national parks without one. We'll also share our thoughts about how much time to budget when visiting Great Sand Dunes National Park in Colorado, and we'll talk about a very unique lodging option in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. We also answer a few camping questions, like whether or not it's a good idea to ship all your camping gear when flying across the country, and what are some of the basics you'll need to get started backpacking. All this and more, coming up next. Our first mailbag question today has to do with the National Park Passport books. So we thought we would talk about those for a few minutes. What are they and why would anyone want to have one? We go back and forth about being obsessed with National Park stamps. There's times when we just forget our book for a couple of months and we don't get the stamps. Then other times we have to get a stamp every time. Yeah, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. But I, I will say that our National Park Passport book, from our original journey to all the U.S. national parks, that two-year journey, that's one of our most prized possessions, wouldn't you say? Right. I have mine in a waterproof pouch. <laughs> I don't even take it to all the national parks. I take a backup book, and I have figured out how I can, with the razor blade, cut 
the pages out of another book and then put them in my original book. Yeah, I know you used to do that, but you know you don't have to do that anymore because now they sell um, they sell the expander pack and they sell the pages that you can just slip right in. So you no longer have to cut and paste, so to speak. But you can. You can <laughs> use the razor blade method if you want, right? <laughs> That's not prohibited. Make... <laughs> no. They didn't pass want... <laughs> a regulation against it. If you want to make things really difficult for yourself, yes, get a razor blade, carefully cut it out. <laughs> and some people have the big binder versions, like the three ring binder and yeah, so there all are... sorts of accessories. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, so there are two different passport books that you can get. There's the classic edition. That's what we have. And it's six by four inches. It's got the blue cover. Um, And then there's a much bigger one called the Collector's Edition, and it's the size is 7 by 10. The small classic edition used to cost about 10 bucks. Now I believe the price has been raised to 12 or 13. Oh, back in the day, yeah. it was like $7. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, if you want to go way back, it's probably. Too. <laughs> it was a nickel. I remember getting was... 10 of them for a nickel when we first started. <laughs> and then that collector's edition passport book is around $30. But Matt, where can you buy those? You can buy them at any National Park Visitor Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also buy them online. I know that Amazon has them. I would not recommend buying them on Amazon just because the price seems to be really high on Amazon. I'm not sure why. You really want to go to Eastern National's website and buy them there because I think they sell them on their website for the same price as in the visitor center. Right. Now, you do have to pay shipping on that, which, you know, is always kind of a bummer. But that particular website is uh, www.americasnationalparks.org. And we will put a link to that in our show notes. But yeah, you can buy those on that website along with the expander pack and other, you know, various things they sell. What I do, because since I would have to pay shipping, I buy them in multiples. I'll buy, you know, maybe five or six of the smaller passport books because I love to give them uh, for baby showers. And babies love them. <laughs> I've seen so many babies. They chew the edges and the, and the books, the, the edges are already rounded. The corners are rounded. And so the babies can get a really good... Good grip on the corner of the book. No. Usually what I do is I get one of those little, um, they also sell in the park gift stores, they sell like the little junior ranger baby vest, and or maybe I'll get like a stuffed squirrel or a puppet bison, and I just make a little package, because what could be better for a baby than saying, hey, Here's ba- a bunch of stuff <laughs> that you can't play with for like three no. years. Hey, baby, here's your ticket to all the national parks that your parents are going to take you to. Here's a life ahead of you of national parks, and they can record their very first stamp, even if they're a baby. Of course, are you going to cry? I, I, it, it chokes me up this to think is, about it. This, this could be the record for the earliest crying in an episode. In the opening. In the, in the opening. Crying in the opening. People have nothing left to look forward to in the episode. They all, Oh, I might cry again later. Okay. I don't know. I, I might uh, cry again later <laughs> if we don't stop talking about baby gifts. Anyway, so that's that's where you buy them and what they are. Now, we got an email from um, a gentleman who is part of uh, this organization called the National Park Travelers Club. And this is, um, it's basically an online 
Passport Stamp Club, where they compare notes and they have a database of all the stamps and they have forums where you can ask questions. And this is at uh, www.parkstamps.org if you're interested. Now, to access their database completely, you do need to become a member, which I believe when I signed up, it was $10 a year in dues. And what do you get for that $10? You get access to their database, man. Oh, okay. And guess what? <laughs> they have an annual convention. I love a good convention. Where is it being held? Well, this summer it's in St. Louis, and they'll be visiting Gateway Arch National Park and Ulysses S. Grant National Historical Site. So if you are an enthusiast of the Passport Stamp Book, you might want to check that club out. Yeah, I, I would say we're enthusiasts, wouldn't you? <laughs> you want to go to the convention? It's in well, like two weeks. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm hour by hour. Maybe. We might go. So recently, we went to Scott's Bluff National Monument. It was a little bit of spur of the moment, but we forgot to bring our passports. So what did we do? Well, they have figured this out because we're not the first ones to forget their passport books. And so they make a little um, card. It looks like a bookmark, size of a bookmark, and it has three white circular stickers on it that you can stamp and then you can put that sticker in your passport book later when you locate it or get home or whatever. The issue with that is two issues. One is I know you always get one and, and want me to stamp it and you figure there's three circles. And, yes. And so each of us would get a stamp and, and an extra. Right. But in reality, it takes me three tries to get a good stamp. <laughs> And I get the third one, the best one. Well, you could you could have whatever's left over, but it, it takes me uh, three good tries. The other thing is, then when you get home, you have to remember where you put it. That's right. We have a bunch of these somewhere. Mm, I know. I've never seen them. I've never seen one again once we've gotten home. We'll find them one of these days. The list price on these is like ninety five cents or ninety eight cents, and it's always when you go to check out, it's always a dollar. One with tax or a dollar two. They should just make it so that it's one buck. Yeah. Now, the other thing you can do if you buy your passport book and you have already been to some national parks, you know, that you went to previously. So you have two options. You can go back to those parks and get your park stamp or what we've heard. Now, we have not tried this before, but we've heard that a lot of the parks, if you send them a self-addressed stamped envelope to the visitor center of the park and request the stamp and, you know, you'd have to mention what date you were there and hopefully they'd be able to backpedal the little date uh, part of the stamp. And yeah, they'll send you, they'll stamp a piece of paper and send it to you. Yeah, the parks will love to hear that we're <laughs> telling people to do this. This is like 1972. Yeah. <laughs> self-addressed stamped envelope. Mm -hmm. Nobody under the age of 40 knows what a self-addressed stamped envelope is. Well, they can Google it. They Google it and see pictures, <laughs> archival pictures yeah. of self-addressed stamped envelope. Now, before you do this, you might give the visitor center a call just to make sure that they will indeed return the stamp to you. And, you know, then it brings up a whole other issue because now you have a piece of paper with the stamp on it, but it's not part of your passport book. So what would you do? Just shove it in there somewhere? Tape it in maybe? I guess you could tape it. Couldn't you send them $1.02 and, and they could stamp on the round stickers that they sell there? That's actually a great idea. Thank if, you, Karen. Yeah, if every single park bookstore sells that, 
I think they do. I, I would think so, too. One more tip. When you have your passport book, make sure to write your name and phone number somewhere inside the front cover is, is a great spot because we have found people's passport books in various visitor centers. We have, yeah. And what I do when I find them just laying around, I put my name and address <laughs> in it. It's so every now and then I'll just get one in the mail. <laughs> With other people's stamps, and then I cut those pages out and put them in my book. So, so I'm getting <laughs> That's getting close. how you have more stamps than me. Yeah. I knew there was a reason. I knew there was a reason. <laughs> but anyway, why should you? You know, why should you get a passport book and do this? I think the, one of the main reasons is because it creates this record of when you were in the parks. You know, for instance, we were just in North Cascades National Park yesterday at the New Halem Visitor Center, and I got the stamp next to my stamp that was from June 23rd of 2010. So 12 years later, side by side. And I thought that was kind of cool. Did you cry? I did. (laughs) (laughs) I did cry. Um, So yeah, it's a great record. It's fun. I mean, for $12, used to be 10, but $12. Nickel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So look for those in your park bookstores. I think they're sold at pretty much every single National Park Service site. That's right. And we even got a mailbag question recently about the National Park Passport books. Yeah, so I'll read this. This is from Kelsey. And she says, I think Kelsey's a she. Probably. I'm curious about your National Park Passport books. Say, for example, you're in Zion National Park for two days. Would you stamp your book twice, one stamp for each day, or do you stamp one time for the entire park, the entire visit to that park? That's actually a really good question. <laughs> it, it's a good question. And now I'm wondering, should we have stamped every day? <laughs> you know, obviously, I mean, it goes without saying, it is your own passport book. You can stamp as many times as you want. However, I will tell you that in some of these regions that have a lot of parks, you do run out of room to put the stamps. So just kind of keep that in mind. That's right. Then you have to do the razor blade thing that you don't recommend. So I'm not going to explain how to do it. By the inside. But yeah, you could do that. I think what a lot of people do and what we usually do is if we're in a park like Zion and we're in Zion Valley right there and there's just the one visitor center, we don't stamp every day. But if we're in a big park where we're moving around a lot, let's say Yellowstone, and there are multiple visitor centers and a lot of times different stamps, then we might stamp on every day if we're at a different area of this big park. We could. We also, and we haven't covered this yet, but there are times when you go to a park and they will have stamps of areas that are close by, other sites that are close by. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that that was cheating (laughs) if you did those, if you weren't going to go. Although once we were in Washington, D.C., which there's a million sites right there in, in the National Mall, and we went to, remember, we went to a site, and they had, without exaggeration, they had like 50 stamps. Mm-hmm. And when I came to, I, <laughs> I, realized, 
I decided that I would actually stamp, use every stamp uh, for my book. Yeah, it's interesting to look at all the different stamps. And of course, again, yesterday when we were at North Cascades National Park, you know, it's co-managed with Ross Lake National Recreation Area and Lake Chelan National Recreation Area. So they had all those stamps too. Did did you get them? No, 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 no. I just wanted the, the National Park stamp. But lots of stamps available. I do think it's fun. Um, for instance, in the Grand Canyon, when we hiked down to Phantom Ranch at the bottom of the at the bottom of the canyon, Phantom Ranch has its own stamp. And big time rookie mistake: we didn't have our passport books. Right, we had to do the piece of paper thing. That was almost better because somehow, and I think it was in the cabin we rented at Phantom Ranch, there was a piece of stationery. I don't think they do this anymore. Like provide stationery in the rooms because so, so, you're going to write a letter. Yeah. Right. Anyway, I got the stamp on one of the stationery letterheads from Phantom Ranch. So it's actually extra cool. Yeah. You got extra points for that. And I don't know where that is. <laughs> I've lost that also. I'll find it somewhere. It's with all the other circle stamps somewhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Kelsey, you know, obviously it's your... It's your book to do what you like with it, but um, you do kind of have to watch out for the space issues in those. And yeah, stamp as much as you want. And especially when you go to the different visitor centers in these big parks that have different areas. Okay. Thank you for the question. Thank you, Kelsey. All right, Karen, what's our next question? This also, this kind of has to do with souvenirs on your trip, which I think the passport book is probably the best souvenir you can possibly buy. Uh, this question is from Tiffany, and she wrote, how do you keep from buying all the little tchotchkes and souvenirs on your trips? We don't. We, we just, <laughs> we just, absolutely just don't. say no. <laughs> It is really hard. And especially some places are, some visitor centers and uh, gift shops are are better than others. And it's extremely difficult. (laughs) It's hard to pass up the bison stuff. Mm -hmm. Pretty much we'll buy anything that has a bison on it. Um, And and the smoky bear stuff too. Although smoky's smoky's blown up. There's a (laughs) lot of smoky stuff out there. Yes. Uh, There's even like Uh uh, t-shirts that'll say like 20252. Only really? you, yeah. Like some somebody's doing those those t shirts, which are which are really actually cooler than having something with smoky beer on them. You have a weakness for Christmas ornaments. I do. I like to buy a Christmas ornament from every place we travel, not just parks, but other places too. Because then, when Christmas rolls around and I have my box of ornaments and I open them oh, up, God, here we go. <laughs> And I have all of these ornaments with these incredible memories. And it does, it makes me cry every time because I look back and I remember where we were when we bought them and what, you know, sometimes we were with the kids and sometimes it was just you and I. And I do think of all of the tchotchkes that you can buy, Christmas ornaments are something that will stay with you and you will use every single year. And I think it does bring back some incredible memories of these places that, you know, that you spent time in over the decades. But we are on a one-in, one-out Christmas ornament. <laughs> oh, no, <policy>. we're not. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Yes, we are. You may not know this, but I've implemented that policy many years ago. Uh, no, the, the trick is you just get a second Christmas tree when you have too many ornaments. Um, yeah, no, the popsicle stick ornaments from the kids when they were young, those are in the one-out pile. <gasps> Those are the best ones. The little egg carton, Jesus oh, in a manger. Yeah. Are you kidding me? When 
when the Jesus glue breaks and and little baby Jesus is separated from the egg carton. <laughs> if those ever disappear, you will disappear with them. Mark my words. Those are the most precious things. The ornaments that our kids made when they were like in preschool. One in, one out. We have, a, you, you, we have one that's a dog bone Santa. Well, we used to. <laughs> <laughs> we, we used to have a lot of ornaments. No, but... don't write, don't write letters. Matt's kidding. Well, so, <laughs> sometimes you, they get stepped on when we're putting no. up the tree, or they break by accident. You know, I think I'm just going to have to issue a blanket statement at the beginning and end of every podcast. Please don't write letters. Matt's only kidding. <laughs> write letters. <laughs> Send us a self-addressed <laughs> envelope, and I don't know. We'll put those in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> all the other museum items that we have. That's right. All right. So I don't um, even know where we're at. Okay, I don't need still to. Okay. Mailbag? All right, Tiffany. Sounds like you might have an issue with buying all the little tchotchkes too, and, and we feel you on that one. Yeah. Okay. All right. Our next question is from Mike in Indianapolis. And he writes, Dear Matt and Karen, I'm planning to be in the area of Great Sand Dunes National Park in late August. I'm wondering how much time to budget for this park. Will I need more than one day? And are there things to do besides the dunes? That's a really good question. It is a good question, especially when you're talking about late August. And I like that he put the time frame on there because it makes a huge difference what month you're talking about when you're visiting. August can be pretty warm. <laughs> and you know, of course, you can get a mild day in August. But if you have a typical August day where it's warm, middle of the day, it's it can be dangerously hot on the dunes, uh, not only for you, but we've, we've said this before in other episodes that uh, if you have pets, if you, have, if you bring in a dog, just know that your dog is not going to complain about how hot the sand is, but it will be hot on their paws. Mm-hmm. So be very careful about taking dogs out on the sand on a hot summer day. Yes. I wrote down that on summer afternoons, the sand surface can reach 150 degrees. So extremely warm. Also, the Great Sand Dunes National Park website says that dangerous thunderstorms can develop every afternoon. So you don't want to be there. Basically, you don't want to be hiking these dunes in the afternoon. Go early in the morning while it's still cool. Or a lot of people, and I wish we would have done this, a lot of people go for sunset. And I guess there are some beautiful sunsets from up there. So this dune field is 30 square miles. It's huge. Right. And and you also, even if you leave early in the morning, you don't want to be way out in the middle of that dune field. And now it's, you know, starting to get hot and it's it's a two hour hike back out. Right. Yeah. I mean, you got to you got to be aware of how hot it is and how hot it's going to be. It's tough hiking. And of course, there's no trail. For us, anyway, every step we took was like a step backwards, practically. And the sand fills your shoes. It's very slow going. So I think it is kind of hard to cover a lot of long distances (laughs) on these dune fields. I mean, you'll feel it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know too many people who can't get enough (laughs) of hiking on the dunes. Right. (laughs) I'm sure there are people who are prepared for it and experienced at it and and know how to go deep into the dune field because they're prepared or they, they've mm-hmm. done it before and they know what they're doing. But uh, yeah, I've never gotten to the top of a dune and, and just thought, gosh, I can't wait to get to the top of the next one. <laughs> 
And when we were there, it was windy. So we had the added benefit of sand blowing in our faces, in our eyes, and and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> but we're not trying to talk you out of it, Mike. <laughs> no, or not at all. We, or no. are we trying to talk him out <laughs> no, of it? No, 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 no. It's a great park. Also, we've also heard that the stargazing is great from the top of a dune. Now, that would be fun because obviously when the sun goes down, it's going to be much cooler. So, you know, you might think about that as well. As far as other things to do, now, th- this park has land that's not dunes. It has mountainous treed areas, right? And there mm-hmm. are trails back there. It, I, I don't think that's what people typically think of when they, they're going to go to this park. But there's an entire backcountry section of this park. Yes, there is. Now, the the issue is, and you didn't say, Mike, if you have a rental car, if you have your own vehicle, but to get back to to these spots, you have to drive Medno Pass Primitive Road. And the park says only four-wheel drive vehicles with high clearance can navigate this road. Apparently, there is a lot of sand and, and uh, cars get stuck in the sand. So you definitely, if you want to explore this area, you definitely need to have the right vehicle. Yeah, and sand's a tough one. I mean, sand, I know people worry about getting stuck in the mud or large rocks in the road that they can't maneuver. Sand is a tricky one. Boy, sand doesn't have to be very deep before you get stuck in it. So be able to self-rescue or go with somebody else who can pull you out. We've pulled people out of the sand before, and they weren't stuck very deep, uh, and they weren't very far in it, and they were just, uh, they, they couldn't move. That's right. Also, you know, depending on the season and, and the rain, this uh, this road also has some creek crossings, and sometimes those can become very deep. Now, the Park Service does close the road when that happens, but that's another thing that you need to be aware of as well. So if you're fully equipped and you've got the right car, you could explore some of the backcountry, which we haven't done, but we've heard it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and you could probably call the visitor center ahead of time and and a ranger can tell you what the conditions are. For sure. Uh, Now, one more thing we'll mention, there's a very popular hike close by. It's not inside the National Park. It's actually about eight miles south of the park. It's called Zapata Falls. And this is an easy half-mile trail to this waterfall that's about 30 feet high. And for the best views, it's sort of back in this little uh, rock alcove. So for the best view, people wade through Zapata Creek to get to the base of the falls, especially in hot weather. It's fun. Lots of families. It's refreshing because you're in the water. So this is easy, popular. You know, you might want to check that little trail out as well. So in summary, if you're just doing the dunes, I think like a half day, like morning, mm-hmm. um, of course, you know, you go in the afternoon, go somewhere cool and, and stay cool and then come back at dusk if you want to go up there and do stargazing. So yeah, hopefully we gave you enough information where you can decide on how long to spend at this park. Thanks for your question, Mike. This mailbag episode is brought to you by the good folks at Rumpel, who are creating better blankets, one beautiful design after another. We've talked before about their National Park collection of blankets, but I was so excited to see that they now have NFL blankets. That opens up a whole new world of shopping for me. <laughs> I know, you were so excited, and you had the great idea to give Rumpel blankets as a wedding gift to some friends of ours who are football fans of two different teams. So we bought a Seattle Seahawks blanket for the bride and a Denver Broncos blanket for the groom. 
And even with a huge selection of designs to choose from, it's good to know that every Rumpel blanket is made from the same fabric that you'll find in premium sleeping bags. And Rumpel recycles over 5 million plastic water bottles a year to offset their carbon footprint. In fact, each blanket is made from 60 recycled water bottles. Who knew that water bottles could be so warm and cozy? And Rumpel has a great deal for our listeners. If you order a product from the Rumpel website and use the code DEAR, you'll save 15%. That's D-E-A-R. That's right. So check out all the blankets and everything else that's on www.rumpel.com. R-U-M-P-L. You're bound to find something that's perfect for you and maybe all your friends as well. Our next question comes from Dan, and he wrote... How would you pack for a family camping vacation that requires a plane flight? We are not hardcore backpackers, so the ultra-light style won't work for us. Conversely, car camping gear is heavy and bulky and hard to pack on a plane. Should I give up on the idea, or should I rent a pop-up trailer upon arrival instead? Pay to ship the gear back and forth? Help. Yeah, I don't know. This is a tough one. We we have flown on one backpacking trip. One of the times we went to Alaska and we hiked the Chilkoot Trail, we managed to get all of our backpacking stuff, not only in the backpack itself, but then we had these duffels that were made to fit our specific backpack that we put the backpack in and then that checked that on the flight. That worked okay, but that was kind of at the limit. There wasn't, there wasn't room really for anything else, I mean, other than the clothes we were wearing. Right. And that was ultralight stuff, Dan. So if you're talking about car camping, which you are, obviously, and you've got, I mean, just think of the kitchen stuff alone that you would need to cook meals for your family. I think that would be, I think it would be a huge hassle to try to pack that stuff and get it to another state. Yeah, I'm not sure that the packing up and shipping and shipping it back, I, I don't know that it's worth it, worth either the effort or the expense you know, one thing to consider is renting a cruiseamerica.com when you get there. We did that once. The RV. Mm-hmm. We did a, a little, uh, gosh, it was maybe a 20-foot RV. Yes. And we loved it. You know, you can rent bedding with those. You can rent pots and pans and kind of the, the kitchen setup. Yeah, I mean, they, even the one we had, I'm sure all they all have this, is a little refrigerator on the inside. You didn't. We didn't even need a cooler. Mm-mm. Uh so that's an option. It is. I mean, we didn't have to get anything except stop for groceries and everything else was in there and it was actually really fun. And of course, then you don't have to worry about the weather and your kids I think would absolutely love it. I mean, what is better than a kitchen table that turns into a bed? Nothing. Well, really. nothing. I I haven't had time to really think about that. <laughs> I might I might change my answer later, but yeah. Nothing is better than that. So, I mean, I think that's the way to go. I know a lot of people also rent those um, camping vans. We've heard from a lot of people who are renting those. I think basically the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know about what the cooking situation is in those. Yeah, I, I just think flying to camp is a tough one. I do too. Uh, so in your um, email, you mentioned renting a pop-up trailer. You know, the problem with that is then, of course, you'd have to rent a vehicle to tow that. Most rental car companies do not let you tow anything with their rental cars. So I think that could be a little tricky trying to set that up. Yeah, some do. Some car rentals are specific that you, you get it to tow something, but you have to you have to make sure that's what you rented. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you want to be really clear on that. 
Also, I was uh, reading a thread on Facebook. We belong to this National Park Travelers uh, group on Facebook, and someone kind of asked the same question. And they were asking about renting camping equipment when they got to their destination. And it was interesting because the responses to that were overwhelmingly negative. People said it's a huge hassle to go into a city like, you know, for instance, going to Seattle to REI to rent that stuff. And they said the stuff you get is oftentimes unreliable. It could be missing parts, pieces. Then it's equipment you're unfamiliar with. You're setting up a tent that you don't know anything about. So I'm not sure that renting camping equipment when you get to your destination is a good idea either. So those are some ideas. Good luck with that. Yes. Uh, But you might consider the... Renting an RV when, yeah. when you get to your destination. Yeah, we loved it. Thanks for the question, Dan. All righty, Karen, what is our next question? Okay, next is a question from Monica. Now, I did slightly edit her email just to make it a little shorter. So Monica wrote, I heard your podcast about Katmai when you talked about all the photographers lined up near Brooks Falls. It made me think about our trip to Canyonlands earlier this year and how we walked with headlamps to Mesa Arch to watch the sunrise. We arrived an hour early for sunrise to see 10 photographers all lined up in front of the arch with all their camera gear set up. There was no way to get a close-up spot. I ended up sitting off to the side to hold my ground as it got closer to sunrise and more people arrived. I decided that because this was a public park and they didn't have any more right to the sunrise than me, why shouldn't I get my photos too? I crawled right in front of all the photographers and placed myself dead center of the arch and took a few pictures. The photographers stopped talking and it was dead silent. I was there maybe one minute and the sun was not in full rising yet. So how does the general public get to see some of these amazing things if photographers are just lined up for hours? There is no taking turns. They don't move. I feel like this could be my future as I am making my way around the parks. Curious about your experiences or advice. Well, we've run into this also. You know, generally, I I know that we've gotten to places that have a lot of photographers set up, and and I know that uh, oftentimes it looks like they're all professional photographers. But nowadays, you know, people have, they have tripods, they have big lenses, and you can't always distinguish the professionals from the amateur photographers. That's right. And you know what? It doesn't make any difference either way because the park rule is the National Park Service will not require a permit for photographers, commercial or non-commercial, to go anywhere or to do anything that members of the public are generally allowed to go or do without a permit. Here's the thing. We have been at parks and talked to some photographers who tell us stories about waiting for 8, 10, 12 hours and longer in one spot to get a specific photo. And you know, my feeling is, if somebody is waiting that long and is, is set up and, and is waiting that long for, for their photo, you know, they, they kind of have the right to stand there and take their photo. And the rest of us who, if we want that spot, then we'll have to wait 14 hours for that. Usually there is enough space for everyone to get a photo. Yes, that Mesa Arch is a, is a very particular instance because it's, it is a very small space, but usually it's not like that. Yeah, and I, I don't know. If, if I got there at one in the morning and waited six hours until sunrise and then somebody 
got there an hour before sunrise and wanted me to move, I, I, I think I'd have a problem with that. Yeah, I, I think you would too. It's, you know, it's not good when they set up and take up a lot of room, although I, I haven't seen photographers do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think in this instance, it is first come first serve. And I think it would be a good question to ask the photographers, hey, what time did you get here? And find that out. And if you want to go back the next day and try to beat them and get your spot. I mean, I honestly, I think these parks belong to all of us, including the photographers. And so if they're willing to stand there for eight, 10 hours, or however long, I think, I think they get the spot would be my opinion. Yeah, I think the bigger issue that we've dealt with is a lot of times people will go into the scene and either not move or just are there for a long, long time. I mean, there was one spot, and I think it may have been this particular arch where a woman sat down and ate her lunch under the arch, you know, and so for basically for whatever, half mm -hmm. an hour, no one could take a, a picture of that. So, so that people shouldn't be doing that. We, we've run into a lot of bad behavior in the parks, but I don't remember a lot of bad behavior on the part of photographers. Right. It's more the general public. You know, I can relate to your frustration, Monica. And I, you know, Matt touched on it briefly, but what happens in our situation all the time is we will get to a destination. For instance, in Mount Rainier National Park, we hiked to this fire tower lookout called Tolmy Peak. And like most fire towers, you can walk around the outside perimeter once you get up there. You know, there's a very small deck area with a railing, and there's one side of the deck that has this incredible view of Mount Rainier. So when we get up there, there are about six people who were hiking together who sat all along that rail and they took out their lunch and they sat there and ate. And so no one could walk around the perimeter. No one could go get their photos. And they literally just sat there. They weren't taking pictures. They were just eating their lunch. And that happens to us all the time is people are sitting, they're sitting in the spot, not taking photos, just just hanging out, doing yoga, eating their lunch, whatever. I just have to mention this really quick, but in uh, Olympic National Park, that there's this beautiful area called uh, the Devil's Punch Bowl, and there's this very scenic little bridge. And, you know, everyone wants a picture of this. Somebody told us that a woman set up her hammock right at the edge of the bridge, basically. And so you could not get a picture without this woman in her hammock. So stuff like that is incredibly rude. Yeah, it, there's a difference between setting up your tripod in a spot to get a, a photograph where other people would like to have that spot too. It's a whole different thing for somebody to be doing something in the park right in the scene that they could literally do 10 feet over and not be in the scene. Yes. Like the, like the folks eating lunch at the fire tower lookout. Eating lunch at the base of the fire tower is the exact same view, exact same experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people need to be mindful that, you know, some people will go to these places, you know, once in their lifetime, they want a photograph of it. And if you're sitting in the scene, then that's... Uh, yeah. A, lot, a lot of times that's not necessary. Right. And so in those cases, our advice would be to ask nicely. So what I would do, like at the Ptolemy Peak, you know, we waited for a little while. We hung out, just kind of waiting to see when they would leave, and they didn't. So I walked to the edge, kind of leaned over and said, hey, guys, I'd really like to get a, a photo along here. Is it okay if I just step over you? And, you know, that's a big enough hint. They all kind of got to their feet and got up. So I would definitely 
when that kind of instance happens and somebody is just sitting, taking up space in your view, ask them nicely. And I'd say, you know, 99 times out of 100, the person's going to move and accommodate you. Yeah, you know, hopefully we can all um, we can all get along and share these spaces and and, you know, everyone can get the shot that they want. Okay, thank you for that question, Monica. Thanks, Monica. Okay, what's next? All right, next up, I will read this one from Scarlett. She wrote, Dear Matt and Karen, my name is Scarlett. I am 12 years old. I am from Portland, Oregon, and I really like your podcast and books. I have two mailbag questions for you. Every June from now on, I will be going to a camp in Huntsville, Alabama. After I leave the camp, we are wanting to go to a national park for a few days. What are some parks that are driving distance from Huntsville that are good to visit around June? And could you also give us some hiking and activity recommendations for these parks? And then she added, my parents and I are good hikers. We did the Chesler Park joint trail hike in five and a half hours, although this was the hardest hike I have ever done. And to that, I say, wow, Scarlett. <laughs> yeah, that's great that you were able to do that. That That is a hard hike. Yeah, that already tells us that you, you and your parents are really strong hikers because that's a tough one. Uh, and then Scarlett goes on to write, my second question is this, what recommendations do you have for people like me who want to be backpackers but are unsure of how to start? I have a goal of hiking the PCT one day, and my parents are also interested in becoming backpackers. We're looking for recommendations of hikes, hiking tips, gear tips, and whatever advice you could give to younger people who want to backpack. Okay. A lot, lot of questions in the question there. Yeah. Where so do you want to start? Let's start with the first one about what national park would be good to spend some days in near Huntsville, Alabama. Well, in that part of the country, of course, there is the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a beautiful park, uh, beautiful mountains. The Appalachian Trail runs right through it. Yeah, Great Smoky Mountains National Park is about a four-hour drive from Huntsville, depending on which section of the park you're going to. One of the hikes that we did, which we really enjoyed, was the Alum Cave to Mount LeConte, and that was 11 miles round trip, so it's kind of of long, Um, had about 2,800 feet of elevation gain. But at the top of that, well, almost at the top, is the LeConte Lodge, and if you just go to the LeConte Lodge, it's... 10 miles round trip, the peak or the, the top of Mount Lacan. It's another half mile up. So a half mile up, a half mile down, and that's where you get the extra mile. But the Lacan Lodge is cool. It's great views. Sometimes the llamas are there. They bring the supplies up and, and down from that lodge using llamas, and it's always fun to see them. It is. We saw them on our hike there. And you know, we wanted to mention this lodge because this might be something really fun for you and your parents to do if you can win the lottery to stay here. So this LeConte Lodge is the highest guest lodge in the the eastern U.S. It sits at 6,400 feet. And because there are no roads up to the lodge, you have to hike in and hence the llamas. The llamas are bringing the supplies you know, to the lodge and taking away, you know, bedding and and trash and things like that. So to get there, there are actually five trails you could take, and those range from five to nine miles each way. But as Matt mentioned, we really like the Alum Cave to Mount Leconte hike. Um, it's got a little bit of everything on that hike, right? It's got a, it's got kind of a cool cave area and um, some incredible views when you get up there. Yeah, it wasn't super easy, but uh, certainly doable. 
That was our favorite hike in the park, and I know it's a lot of people's favorite hike as well. So even if you can't get reservations at LeConte Lodge, we would highly recommend it. I, I looked up the process for booking this lodge. Now, this was last year, so I don't know if they're going to do it again this year, but um, they accept written and online requests from August 3rd through September 27th, and then they held those until October 1st, and they processed them with the phone calls on October 1st, and it's basically a lottery, and they just randomly draw people for the next year. So if you're interested in that, uh, we will post a, a link to that also in our show notes for you, but it would be great fun now. The lodge provides bedding, and they do cook meals. They serve dinner and breakfast and, I think, sack lunches. So basically, you pretty much just have to get yourself up there. Yeah, that'd be really fun to do. That, that would be a good family trip. Yeah, as Matt mentioned, the Appalachian Trail runs through the park. There's 72 miles of the trail in Great Smoky Mountains, so you could certainly find a lot of great hiking on that trail. And then, of course, you have the Blue Ridge Parkway that you can drive, and that's a national park unit all into itself. Yeah, and that's a beautiful drive. Uh, We haven't done the whole thing, but we've done uh, large sections of that, so that's a beautiful drive. So, yeah, and, and of course, you could also go to Gatlinburg, which is right outside (laughs) of Great Smoky Mountain National Park. It's kind of touristy mm, but people, kind of kind of but people love it they either they love it or hate it yeah i think we loved it and hated it at the same time so scarlett you'll want to do your research on this because you could definitely spend a few days you'll want to figure out what kind of place you like to stay in and what hikes you want to do and i think it would be a great choice for you and your family okay what about scarlett's question on backpacking Okay, so we're going to be brief on this because on episode 54 in our mailbag, we talked about how to get started backpacking. So you could go back and listen to that. Basically, what we would suggest is to start small and start easy. Yeah, that's probably good advice for almost anything you you try that's (laughs) new. Just do a little and then learn and and do a little bit more and a little bit more. We we started out uh, our very first backpacking trip was just a few miles and it was to a beach. And so um, we didn't have a lot of challenges on the trail. We just had the challenges of trying to figure out what to take in our backpacks and carrying our heavy backpacks uh, for the first time. The the other reason why you want to do a a couple of uh, small trips first is you will learn very quickly what you value in your backpack, meaning like what's worth the weight to carry and what isn't. And that's, you know, a personal choice. Everyone likes their own comforts when backpacking, but a lot of times you'll get to camp and you realize, you know, a third of the stuff that you carried all the way up the mountain, you don't even need or don't want. And so the next time you don't take that stuff with you. Now, the problem with getting started backpacking is that it is somewhat expensive because there are some things that you absolutely need to have, and there's really no getting around it. Now, since you and your parents are hikers, we'll assume that you already have the 10 essentials, and of course, you'll need to bring those with you as well. So we'll just briefly mention a few things that you'll need to get if you want to start backpack camping. Yeah, well, to start with, a a tent, you need a tent, and if it's you and your parents, you could get a three-person tent or or maybe have separate tents, but absolutely practice setting it up at home, uh, either in your front yard or your living room or, or wherever, because one, um, just want to make sure that the tent you have, either you borrowed or bought, uh, comes with all the stuff you need to set it up. And second is 
it's kind of hard to set up a tent the first time, a brand new tent. It's not hard the second time. And when you set up a tent on a backpacking trip, you're usually pretty tired. In one situation we were in, it was raining, so we wanted to get the tent up quickly. And you don't want to be figuring it out for the first time when when you get to your first camp. So practice setting it up at home. Yeah, it could be dark. It could be windy. Absolutely practice at home so you know what you're doing. And then you'll need a sleeping bag. You know, a sleeping pad, I think, is everything. It's not absolutely necessary, but for comfort, I think a sleeping pad is important. And then some kind of pillow. You know, they sell inflatable pillows. You could use a stuff sack with your jacket and some clothes in it for a pillow if you want. What else, Matt? A, st- a small stove. Uh, we use a jet boil. There are other jet boil size stoves and, and a canister of fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, you need some kitchen supplies like a spork and a cup and a bowl. Um, we generally use dehydrated meals. You need water bottles and water treatment supplies. So uh, you generally are not carrying all the water you need for the trip with you from the start. Uh, and you don't want to use water from streams or lakes for your food without treating it first. I know a lot of people think that, well, I'm going to boil the water to use to rehydrate my food. So isn't that fine? I don't have to treat it when actually... The recommendation is you're supposed to boil water for 15 minutes in order to kill stuff. So you really don't want to just rely on boiling. So you want a a filter or some some way to purify water. Yeah. And again, know how to use it before you go. Uh, You're going to need some kind of a food storage system for animals. So whether that's a bear vault, even if there are no bears, we've used it to keep the raccoons away. There are other storage systems like rat sack and things, but you're, you need a way to store your food away from uh, rodents and animals. Yeah. And a rat sack is just essentially a chain mail bag that keeps animals from being able to gnaw through it. Yes. You know, think about you'll need some bathroom supplies, right? Some toilet paper, a bag for the used toilet paper, maybe a trowel to dig. Some backcountry campsites do have um, vault toilets. So look into that and see what your toilet options are. But you need to be prepared there. And then I cannot overstate this enough when you absolutely need a change of clothes and dry socks. And you need to put those in a dry sack in case you get stuck in the rain. We would have died on a couple of backpacking trips if we didn't have dry clothes to put on. Yeah, that's right. And by the way, you also want most big backpacks come with a rain cover. If it does, if your backpack doesn't come with the rain cover, make sure you have one. Mm-hmm. You could imp- improvise with a heavy black trash bag, but uh, you want to keep that pack dry if, if it starts raining. Right. And then, you know, the last thing we're going to mention is, of course, a large backpacking backpack. Now, ours are Osprey brand, and, and, you know, we think they're just great. Now, one very important tip is you need to get them fitted at an outdoor store before you buy them because... They're not general size like, well, I wear a large shirt, so I'm going to get a large backpack. That's not how it works. They actually measure the length of your spine, and and they fit you that way. So it's very important that you get measured correctly before you spend the money on a backpack. 
So those are some of the basics that you'll need. Yeah, and you know, getting started if you're if you're going with your parents, maybe just your mom or your dad could could invest in the big backpack to start, and then they carry the bigger things, and you and the the other person carry the smaller things. Because one thing, um, Scarlett, is that before you spend the money on a, a big backpack, you might want to wait a few years until you're fully grown, because otherwise you you're going to be buying a second one once you you know you reach your full height. Um, but anyway, it's wonderful that you guys want to try it. Again, start small, start easy. You don't want to overwhelm yourself on your first hike because <laughs> it can be overwhelming. So start slow so you can savor it and have a great time. And uh, we're thrilled that you are enjoying our podcast and we appreciate your questions. Yes. Thanks, Scarlett. All right, Karen, do we have any more questions? We have one last question. Um, this comes all the way from Spain, from Kike. I hope I'm saying that right. And Kike wrote, just wanted to thank you for your amazing work and for making me so eager to visit the national parks. Hopefully sometime soon. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions for the mailbag. Is there any volunteer program at the National Park Service open for foreigners? Also, could you provide us with some tips for visiting the national parks on a budget? Okay, good questions, because we see a lot of foreigners when we visit the national parks, a lot of people from Europe and, and also a lot of people from Asia. So there are a lot of people coming to the United States and visiting the national parks, which is great. Glad they have a chance to see them and, and enjoy them. So obviously we don't know what it's like to come from out of the country over here to visit them. But we did some research on your first question, and there is a volunteer program with the NPS. Yeah, there is a program. It's called the International Volunteers in Parks Program. They shorten it to IVIP. So who is qualified for this? It says, if you're a college or a university student from another country, if you work for another country's park agency, or if you have a background in environmental or cultural related fields, you are welcome to apply to this program. So that covers a lot of people. Yeah, it does. Now, they will only select those who meet visa and immigration requirements. So that's, you know, that's a thing that they can't get around. Um, so what the, it says on this website, and we're going to post a link in our show notes to this one as well. It says they train and house international volunteers. Um, and they usually select people who have the educational and professional background to benefit from the training and who have the potential to share it with their colleagues and scholars when they return to their home countries. So they're looking for ambassadors, you know, someone who will take what they learned in the parks here and then do something with it back in their home country. Yeah, and, sh and share that knowledge. That's right. And something to remember, this, this IVIP program shouldn't be confused with the IP Therefore I Am program, the one that I... <laughs> That, that I, oh God. Is that another t-shirt? Well, it could be. <laughs> we got the creative department's got a lot, of, got, got too many ideas right now. But um, So Kike, they have more information on the website and there is also, I believe, an application you can uh, fill out and submit. So again, we're going to post that in our show notes. And the second part of your question about how to travel to the parks on a budget we are going to answer in next month's mailbag. Oh, is that right? Yes. Oh. Because we're out of time. Oh. <laughs> We've talked too much again. Okay. So <laughs> tune in next month to listen to the second yeah. half of your answer. That's right. Thank you so much for the question. Well, that's another good mailbag episode. Yeah. 
Yes. They're, and, they're kind of like mini episodes. Each, each mm-hmm. question is like a mini episode, isn't it? That's right. Now, we mentioned our show notes a lot, and you can find those on our podcast website, which is www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com. And we're excited because we have a brand new website. We've made some upgrades to it. The same URL, so it's the same place that people have gone to in the past. But we changed uh, systems that has a lot more functionality. It's prettier. It, it's prettier. <laughs> but I think with this new system, those show notes are searchable. Yeah, and, and the thing I really like about our new website, too, is the search feature. So we get a lot of messages from people asking us, hey, did you have you ever done a, a podcast episode about you know Bryce Canyon, for instance? Now with, we have a search feature, so you could literally type in Bryce Canyon, and all of the different podcast episodes where we mention Bryce Canyon will pop up. Yeah. So it's a thing of beauty and joy. (laughs) So you can look it up yourself. That's what you were going to say. No, I was trying to say it in a nice way. (laughs) But all of our podcast episodes are on there. All, gosh, what do we have, like 86 now, 87, 88? It's it's in the 80s. We're we're hoping that by the end of this year, I'm sure we'll get there, depending on our schedule, that we'll hit number 100 in this calendar year. I'm sure that will happen. Oh, yeah. That's our plan is by uh, December 31st to, to hit 100. Yeah, so that's very exciting. But you could just scroll through the whole list and see what you might have missed, what looks interesting to you. So, yeah, check out our website. And, again, we are, we're going to put links to the National Park Travelers Club, to Mount LeConte Lodge, to the, this International Volunteer in the Parks program. All the stuff that we talked about will be on show notes for this episode. All right. And we are still kind of on a summer break. We're kind of on a every other week schedule right now. So we will have a new episode after this one. Our next one will be July 14th. So yeah, tune in then. That's right. We'll see y'all then. <laughs> <laughs>